Coming to you in a pre-recorded fashion from the centre of the decaying empire, it is the Red Star Radio Daily Bulletin covering all the latest news from the NATO-Russia war that is using Ukraine as its battleground. So today going to be be starting with a couple of updates from the before turning to other related matters, and these include, of course, the continued stories regarding potential weapon supplies from Iran to Russia. Uh, the story that broke yesterday of a potential Iranian attack on Saudi Arabia, which so far has not emerged, and the stories behind that, the German ultimatum to Serbia, uh, Bolsonaro's non-concession concession, and uh, what exactly is the role that he's been playing in recent years, the cancelling and then the resumption of the Ukraine grain deal and the reasons behind that, Armenia and Azerbaijan, and of course the peace talks that Putin has been overseeing and how that all fits in. Pashinyan, um, Nikol Pashinyan, who's widely regarded by his domestic Armenian critics as a Western puppet, uh, has been making a trip to Tehran today and yesterday. Uh, So we're going to be seeing what's come out of that. And of course, Elon Musk in the uh, now ongoing process of prostrating himself before the U.S. security, state and censorship regime, making all kinds of promising promises to continue running Twitter in exactly the same way as his predecessors did. Uh, If you believed Elon's rogue billionaire persona, then you are a bigger sucker than a Tesla owner. What more can I say? But to begin with, the latest from the military situation in eastern Ukraine slash southwestern Russia. Now, the situation in the Donetsk People's Republic is, according to the head of the republic, uh, Denis Pushilin, that the forces, the Russian armed forces, as they all are counted as now, uh, which includes the regular Russian army and, of course, those units that were formerly identified as the Donetsk uh, militia groups, they're all now advancing across uh, the DPR, uh, according to Pushilin, and this is backed up by releases from the Russian Ministry of Defense today. So the Russians have st- restarted an offensive in the DPR and are attempting to push the Ukrainians back all the way across the line of contact there. And so that's certainly something to keep an eye on. There is not expected to be movement um, of any great variety for another few weeks until of course the rest of this 300,000 strong reinforcement group had fully arrived at the front line but it seems that the Russians thought that there was a good chance of pushing the Ukrainians back in the Donetsk area so took advantage of this. So there's certain things to take a look at there in terms of uh, potential movement. Are the Ukrainians going to move forces across to try and hold this back? Apparently they are. Uh, there are some other more detailed updates coming from the uh, the Russian Ministry of Defense. Uh, in the Kupiansk region, the armed forces of Ukraine, which were reportedly again backed by foreign mercenaries, again, they, the Russians are claiming that these are mainly Polish and Romanian, as keeps happening now, with backup from uh, English-speaking mercenaries. So that probably means... Canadian, American, British. There have been verified reports of Australians and New Zealanders being in the mix as well, but this is going to be predominantly uh, Polish, it would seem, uh, with some Romanians as well. And the Russians claim that this uh, attempted uh, AFU, Armed Forces of Ukraine, advance up in the region of Kupiansk 
was defeated with 150 casualties, including both armed forces of Ukraine and foreign mercenaries killed and wounded. There was an also an attempt yesterday at an, uh, by the armed forces of Ukraine on uh, Makievka and Shevonopopovka, uh, which was apparently halted by concentrated Russian artillery fire with 30 killed and wounded from the armed forces of Ukraine there. There was also attempted um, assaults by the armed forces of Ukraine on Milovoy, Sukarmov, Bresinskoy, Kostromovka and Zelinoy Gai. But these are reported to have been halted and the attacking forces destroyed by the Russian armed forces with Again, this is a Russian claim, uh, not backed up by any Ukrainian sources. Over 110 armed forces of Ukraine killed. The armed forces of Ukraine also continue to shell the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant, with 20 rockets reported to have landed there in the last 24 hours. And the radiation, though, from the plant is still at normal levels in terms of the radiation emitted. And interestingly enough, another story that came out today, of course, the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant has been integrated into the Russian nationalized uh, nuclear power company, the uh, Rosatom, as it's known. And of course, one interesting wrinkle from this story, if you will, is that the Ukrainian nuclear power plants over the last few years were powered on uh, fuel purchased from Westinghouse, the American company, whereas, of course, that these plants were actually built to uh, process and be powered on fuel from uh, Russia, which took some converting over to be able to be run on the Westinghouse fuel and was also the Westinghouse stuff was apparently considerably more expensive. And this is according to a video from the Ukraine League Telegram channel. And this is run by an interesting fellow called the Vasily Prozorov, who's a former employee of the Ukrainian secret police, the SBU, who uh, defected to the Russian side several years ago and has been working on a series of documentaries which, in which he claims to demonstrate activities of a prolifically corrupt nature within the Ukrainian state. And he released a video preview of his uh, book that he's been working on uh, yesterday, showing uh, some details which are verified of Ukrainian purchases of uh, nuclear fuels from Westinghouse and massively overpriced trains from General Electric to run on the uh, Ukrainian railways. And of course, he makes the point, which is demonstrably true, that the Ukrainian government under both Poroshenko and Zelensky was making these hugely overpriced purchases that made no sense like as i said it makes no sense to try and run these ukrainian nuclear reactors on american fuel a uh, back back of course when this deal was done this is several years ago before the es escalation of the war when ukraine was still trading with russia very extensively so they didn't need to go and buy this fuel from westinghouse they did so, of course, at an enormously inflated price in order to try and purchase influence within the American Congress. And that's what, of course, the infamous story, Burisma story is about with uh, Joe Biden's misbegotten sprog, Hunter Biden, and John Kerry's um, stepson being involved in it as well, as, he are, as is Pelosi's family as well. The reason why the Ukrainians were inviting all these uh, corrupt showers, showers of filth from the American Congress over to dip their beaks into the 
uh, trough that is the Ukrainian uh, supply of public money is because, of course, they were trying to buy influence. They were trying to throw money around with these notoriously corrupt characters in Iber getting them on their side. Of course, joke was on there more, most to the point. The joke was on the Ukrainian working class because the these uh, heinous bastards like Biden and Pelosi and Kerry and others will, of course, have Ukraine fight to the last man and the last woman now, considering that Ukraine is now doing a call-up of uh, women who have had prior military experience of any kind. They are now being forbidden from leaving the country and being called up. So all that this um, expensive association with the most corrupt elements of the American political class has done is, of course, made sure that they, these same elements are propping up Zelensky to the point where the Ukrainian state collapses. So a really good use of money there. And of course, now most of these Ukrainian nuclear power plants are going to be rendered uh, knocked off the grid because, of course, the air campaign from the Russians continues with more and more rolling blackouts across Ukraine being documented blackouts overnight in Kiev. Ukrainians now talking about bringing in charging points because the power is going to remain off to domestic um, uh, appliances uh, in terms of it being knocked out from hundreds of thousands of, uh, of flats, apartments and houses across Kiev and the other major cities, electronic-based transport like trolleybuses and trams being shut down. A lot of the infrastructure that deals with the distribution of electricity on the railways being knocked out slowly but surely the Russians are returning Ukraine to the Stone Age and it's happening over the course of what is it, over the course of a month now uh, by the time the Russians come to launch their bigger attacks it'll be over the course of two months so by the beginning of December and of course Ukraine is reacting to this by doing the thing that the Ukrainian political class have been doing from the very beginning in fact from before the beginning of this latest stage of the war which is that they have been desperately trying to threaten uh, the NATO countries into getting involved and of course they still won't get involved because they cannot afford to have a war with Russia. As I've said on multiple occasions before, all you need to do to look at whether these characters running these countries actually want a war with Russia is can they sustain a war with Russia for more than a week? And the answer for all of them is no. Even Germany, the answer is no. They just do not have the capacity to do it. And the Americans don't want to do it. The Americans wanted to actually secure their project in Ukraine, as Ritter said, Scott Ritter said many, many months ago, is that they would have actually have put American troops in Ukraine from January of this year. They have never done so. There are, of course, Americans fighting out of uniform uh, with the mercenary groups, but and there are, of course, some Americans in uniform acting as instructors, apparently inside Ukraine. But serious combat involvement is still a no. And Ukraine's, the Ukrainian government's desperate attempts to try and make this happen only lead to more and more humiliating failures. Their latest scam is that Ukrainian Prime Minister Shmigal has been going around saying, well, we'll have to evacuate all our cities, with the implication being that they are going to send another wave of refugees into Poland. And this is already turning out to be increasingly negative for the Polish government because fundamentally they didn't mean for this to go on as long as it has done and their interest in this was purely um, self-serving in that they wanted to see either the Russians suffer a defeat which is not going to happen 
or if Ukraine quickly collapsed, they thought they could seize some of it. The longer it goes on and the more the Russians have got themselves in the mood to just end Ukraine as a state, the less likely it is that the mad dogs of Warsaw are going to get their slice of Western Ukraine because the Kremlin becomes less and less inclined to do any kind of deal with them. And again, without American backing, and I mean full American backing, not just diplomatic backing, but military backing, the the rabid dogs of uh, the Warsaw are not going to be able to have their grand day out in Galicia without getting the hell blown out of them by the Russian army. And again, this is not the uh, the Warsaw um, scored a victory over the Red Army in 1920. This is not the Poland of uh, General Pilsudski. This is a pathetic government, a pathetic bourgeoisie, much less powerful even than they were when coming out of long-term czarist and German occupation. And with a, a hollowed-out nation in many respects that they have fared slightly better than some of the other former communist states and with a hollowed out industrial base they're not going to be able to sustain anything against the russians and the americans aren't going to back them either now it's said that the americans have around about thirty thousand troops most of them in poland that are circulating around eastern europe that's not enough to do anything if you listen to any of the military experts who've displayed any ability of to to critically analyze the situation who have, who have been saying from the very beginning that those 30,000 Americans stationed in Poland and other places, they are there to make a point. They are there to say, well, don't you dare invade NATO, Mr. Putin, which, of course, even the American administration knows very well that Putin has no intention to, of invading any of these NATO countries. So it's all just a show. It's all just to make it look as if they're doing something when they're not. But anyway, a slight digression there. But the threat, the threat of a wave of refugees moving into Poland is not something that the Polish government is going to relish. There's already a significant backlash in Poland towards the Ukrainian refugee population. The German government can't afford to undergo the political disaster that would be another mass wave of migration. It would only strengthen the AFD, as um, the German government of Schultz fears it would. So this is something that they are wanting to avoid. It may be something that they end up with anyway. Or the Ukrainian regime collapses before then and the Russians just move in and take the lot. So, again, keep an eye on this because there's only going to be more attempts by Zelensky's government to try and desperately secure some kind of NATO involvement because it's the only thing that is going to actually save their bacon now. So, other things that are going on around the place. There continues to be claim and counterclaim regarding the potential for weapons from Iran and this is of course being used by the Americans to justify well the same policy they've always been following in Iran for 40 years which is attempted regime change first time this was to be done using the army of Saddam Hussein's Iraq now it's being done via the um, terrorist grouping of the MEK various other different uh, Iranian uh, terrorist exile organizations who are operating inside Iran. There was a recent, of course, terrorist attack in a mosque. There is another, apparently, that has just taken place today in the east of the country near the border with Pakistan, uh, in Iranian Balochistan. Every rebel group, every separatist organization, every exile with an axe to grind is being armed and trained and sent into Iran by the U United States with the aim of just 
essentially repeating the Syria operation. It's like create as much chaos as possible, try and provoke uh, open warfare in the streets, and then hope for the best. And some say they want the MEK coming to power, and they wouldn't mind that. But they honestly don't mind. Uh, as long as the current government falls, as long as the re revolutionary uh, regime falls, they don't care who takes over, even if the country splits apart into half a dozen different warring factions. doesn't matter. As long as that 90, the product of that 1979-80 revolution is gone, that's the only objective the United States government has in mind. I don't think that they will succeed in the slightest. I think the, if you look at the uh, structure of the Iranian government, it is not only secure in terms of its uh, political structures, but through uh, some of the, the, the militia movement, like the, the Basij, and through other things, they can still carry out um, mass mobilization and engage large numbers of the working class and middle class population of Iran in actually defending the achievements of the revolution. And if you look at um, some of the Iranian telegram channels, of course, these come from a um, either a pro-government or at least a pro-revolution perspective, you can see the mass mobilizations taking place in the cities across Iran every day, far, far bigger than anything that the US-sponsored so-called opposition can manage. So again, they're not going to manage this, um, certainly not now when the United States is on the slide and its uh, operations have failed everywhere else. The Iranian intelligence services have also had ample opportunity to study all the tricks that the Americans use and must be very wise to them by now. So the weapons from Iran story is just basically being used to try and uh, diplomatically isolate Russia, even though that's not going to happen, and also you being used as a stick to beat the Iranians with, which of course is increasingly ineffective because Iran is less isolated now than it has been for many, many years. It's doing its deals with the Chinese and the Russians. What the Russians are doing is, of course, they're signing contracts over the manufacture of oil uh, drilling technology and gas turbines with Iran, which is uh, worth billions and billions of dollars. They are also, of course, um, engaging in more and more trade with Iran. Trade with Iran has increased dramatically over the past uh, nine months or so. So the Iranian government is less isolated, has more trading partners, and is probably more secure now than it has been at any moment in the last 40 years. doesn't mean there's not risks, of course, but the American regime change projects become increasingly desperate. I mean, the protests that are going on now are as nothing compared to the so-called Green Revolution protests that took place all the way back in 2009, if you remember those. So I think that this attempt will end up in a, in a failure and a humiliating failure, now, there's talk of the Iranians launching some kind of revenge attack against the United States and Saudi Arabia, but I'll come more to that on just a, in just a moment. Now, what is being talked about now is, of course, the Americans have been accusing the Iranians repeatedly of supplying drones to Russia. I think it's, it's pretty well established now that the given the sheer number of these drones slash missiles that uh, the Russians are using to attack the Ukrainian energy grid, these aren't being delivered from Tehran every day. They just wouldn't have the capacity to do it. What is being done is that these designs for these drones that the Russians are using have been purchased on license uh, from Iran, so that the what the Russians have bought is the license to produce these domestically, and these are being produced domestically en masse 
by the huge capacities that the Russian um, military industrial complex has, which is, of course, part of the legacy of the Soviet Union, which the Russian Federation has kept very much alive. Now, what, what is being talked about is, of course, the potential provision of Iranian missile systems to uh, Russia. Now, of course, this wouldn't, again, it wouldn't involve the Russians buying these things ready-made. It would mean that the Russians buy license to manufacture these Iranian missile systems. A couple of interesting points about these as to why the Russians might be interested in, in buying their right to produce these. The missiles that apparently are being considered for purchase are the Fateh-110 and the Zolfagar. Now, these are both uh, mobile missile launching systems. So if you see those um, like low flatbed truck things that the um, you see Russia and other nations transporting missile systems on, these like mobile ballistic missile firing systems are used to essentially move the missile into position, fire, fire the payload off, and then rapidly move to another firing position and then reload and fire again. The aim of which is, and you also see this with the air defense system the Ukrainians are using, the S-300, which is an old Soviet design. The aim of this system is, by having a, uh, a portable firing system, is that you can avoid the enemy uh, aircraft that are trying to hunt down your missile firing systems, uh, avoid enemy satellite detection, or at least move to a different location quickly enough so that any enemy satellite which spots you can't relay the information quickly enough to the enemy aircraft or artillery to try and annihilate your missile system. And both of these systems have these, um, the, 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 apparently the Russians are considering purchasing, have this uh, mobile element to them. Now the advantage of them is that they have, um, they are very long range, uh, around about 700 kilometers each the projectiles can be fired, which is a hell of a long way. They also have uh, heavy payloads, uh, but they are also, and this is perhaps the most crucial element, not only do they have heavy payloads that can do a lot of damage, not only are they mobile, but they are also very cheap and efficient to produce. They are systems which the Iranians have uh, had to improvise around. And you find that well, a lot of the technology the Iranians have been producing in terms of missile technology and drone technology is stuff that they've reversed engineered from the Americans. See, all this stuff that the Americans were dumping into Iraq for the last 20 years, um, a lot of it getting blown up, captured or sold by corrupt elements in their own military or the Iraqi military. And the Iranians bought a load of this stuff or got hold of a load of it somehow through various channels, reverse engineered it and turned a lot of it into their own tech, which is um, a tremendously uh, ironic quirk of history. So these systems, one of the reasons why the Russians would be considering potentially getting hold of them is because they are going to be needing a lot of these missiles when they come to launch their further assaults on uh, Ukrainian infrastructure, Ukraine, what's left of the Ukrainian energy grid, what's uh, left of the Ukrainian uh, bridge systems crossing the Dnieper and other rivers. Um, if you're looking to destroy an awful lot of uh, targets in a relatively short period of time, you're going to need an awful lot of these missiles. And, of course, the Russians have uh, very effective cruise missiles already, but these uh, consist of uh, more 
high-tech components and are more expensive to produce and if you need to launch a lot of these things very very quickly and you've got an if a more cheap and effective alternative that you could just produce much quicker and with much less um, resorting to um, high-tech uh, components well why wouldn't you use that and the Iranians seem to be specializing in this so if they do buy these it won't be that the Iranians are shipping them to them they'll just be selling them the license to produce them the Americans, if this happens, will scream, shout, and bellow. But really, what can they do to the Iranians that they haven't done over the last 40 years anyway? I don't think the, Ameri the, the Americans have got much left to throw at them other than just funding various terrorist organizations and trying to start um, regional conflicts or in, uh, in civil wars inside Iran. So there's an interesting thing there regarding the emergence of Iran as a weapons supplier in its own right and with weaponry that was often reverse engineered from the Americans. Now this leads into the further stories about uh, America and Iran and the Saudi claim that there was an Iranian attack being uh, prepared uh, on their soil and this turned out to be nothing. This all came out of a, sto a uh, story regarding the, the apparently red flag of revenge being flown over a particular mosque in Iran that was flown when Qasem Soleimani, the general from the IRGC, was killed by Donald Trump's administration. Uh, it's funny how uh, Trump supporters often seem trying to get away from that particularly awkward fact. But the Saudis are claiming that the Iranians were planning an attack on them. No such thing happened. And you've got to wonder why the Saudis were claiming this. Are they just paranoid? Or is this an attempt via backdoor means to keep some foot in the American camp by claiming that the Iranians are going to attack them and of course that they know very well that there's huge elements of the American state machine particularly in the military and intelligence sectors who have a pathological loathing of Iran they have never gotten over the humiliation that the Iranians piled on them in 1979 and will do literally anything to secure some kind of regime change there even if that means giving aid to Mohammed bin Salman, who has been spending the last month thumbing his nose at the American administration. So is this an attempt by the Saudis to win back some um, elements within the American state structure, thinking that, well, Biden's on his way out. If we uh, play our cards right, we could still make our money off to, uh, reducing the oil production, still make our deals with the Russians, and still rebuild our relationship with the incoming Republicans whose priority is much more aggressively orientated towards regime change in Iran even more than the Biden gang are because of course you've got all the different characters from many of the different wings other than like the openly uh, American petty bourgeois nationalist wing MAGA types who are all in with the MEK and the various other different Iranian terrorist organizations, the exile terrorist organizations. So maybe the Saudis are thinking, well, wouldn't do us any harm to try and um, drum up some anti-Iran scares when we've taken a diplomatic hit in our relationship with the US. Who knows? Worth keeping an eye on, certainly. And whatever the Iranians do carry out in terms of their strike back at the people we all know control ISIS, which is the Saudis, though admittedly on behalf of the United States, there will be something, but I don't think it'll take such an obvious form as a direct attack. Uh, who knows what it'll be? Maybe they'll provide 
more drone and missile technology to the Yemenis. Going to be interesting one to watch. So, uh, other things to mention. The uh, German government of Olaf Schultz, uh, the most useless German leader since, well, one of the immediate predecessors of Hitler, probably, um, made a not-so-veiled threat, according to uh, the German newspaper Die Welt, Yesterday, he um, said that the Serbs, led, led by the current Serb President Vucic, needed to make a choice of whether they were going to integrate with the EU or integrate further with the Russians. And this seems to be the Serbian government of Vucic finally running out of uh, fence to sit on, which was always going to happen at a time of increased great power tension where one imperial bloc is declining. They are trying to aggressively assert themselves now the Germans are they are uh, trying to reinforce the EU of course bringing Serbia into it would be another uh, market for German capitalism to dominate and destroy but also uh, they are trying to at the same time make some deals with the Chinese and try to balance out the um, horrific dependence they have on the United States and, of course, there'll be a motivation there with Schultz trying to use uh, what economic leverage the Germans have in terms of the relationship with China to potentially damage the Chinese relationship with the Russians as well. I really don't think that Schultz has that much leverage left, to be honest. I think the Chinese know that the Germans are in trouble and can snap up their assets and market share with relative ease. I don't think Schultz has much to bargain with in terms of the uh, the Chinese maybe some stuff over high-tech German production methods, but he's not playing with a very strong hand here. So he gives this ultimatum to the Serbs. Of course, Serbia has a relationship with the Chinese as well. They've been buying military technology from them. So which way is this going to break is an interesting question. The Serbs have been, of course, saying one thing and doing another for a while. Vucic has been swearing uh, fealty to the great old ally in Russia, but also then been saying he wants further integration with the EU, so which way are the Serbs going to jump? Certainly the Serbian population wants nothing to do with NATO, but this remain, this then opens up an interesting question of, is there a powerful enough political force within the Ser existing Serbian bourgeois political structures to actually advocate for maybe Serbia joining the um, Eurasian Economic Union? Interesting question. Would they do it? Uh, interesting question because surely there must be within Serbia now certainly within the Serbian working class and petty bourgeoisie there must be enough people who can see clearly what EU membership is doing certainly what it's done to Bosnia which has just hollowed it out completely what it will do to Croatia and has done to Slovenia so the nations of the former Yugoslavia have not gained those elements of the bourgeoisie who have gained so maybe the serbian compradors are thinking hey fuck it let's just go all in but given that there's significant opposition to eu membership based on the fact that not only does it hollow the nation out but it comes almost automatically with nato membership there'll be a lot of opposition to this so which way will vucic jump or will he continue to try and tap dance back along the fence again Again, something to keep an eye on. Further developments uh, needed to be observed there. What will the Russian response be? Will they make some kind of offer to the Serbs? At this stage, it's difficult to see what they could do. Um, but again, 
Keep an eye on uh, Russian foreign ministry visits to Belgrade or communications with Belgrade. Uh, the Germans, of course, have no real means other than the economic to try and force some kind of ultimatum on, ultimatum on Serbia. They could, of course, stir shit up in Kosovo or they could make further problems for the Serbs in um, Bosnia with regard to the relationship between Republika Srpska and the other two entities that make up this loose federation of the Bosnian state. But let's see where that goes. There's been a lot of uh, noise coming out of the uh, Serbian part of Bosnia, the Republika Srpska, regarding potentially breaking away, joining Serbia proper. The bloody business that was begun in Yugoslavia in the late 80s, which the US imperialists significantly contributed to because they had a pre-existing priority, as identified in the book uh, by Michael Parenti dealing with Kosovo. Uh, Parenti uh, dug out the US national security uh, memorandum from 1984, signed by Reagan, citing the breakup of Yugoslavia as a key strategic priority for the US. And of course, everything they did there in the early to mid-90s to the end of the 90s in Kosovo significantly uh, advanced their interests in, in that regard, because it did, of course, lead to the breakup of the country completely. But the business isn't concluded there in the slightest. This loose confederation that they've got going in Bosnia, which is basically a colonial protectorate, is a very unstable. Uh, the Serbs are moving towards wanting out of it. The business in Kosovo is not finished by a long way. Albania might have been reduced to a pathetic puppet state of the US empire, but by no means a stable one. Uh, certainly a very poor one, one with a lot of people leaving, emigrating every, every month of the year. So this is business which is not over, and in a renewed economic and therefore political crisis of capitalism, all these old problems would come racing back to the surface again. So again, events in the Balkans continue to be very much worth observing into the near future. Now, this takes us to the next item on the agenda, moving eastwards, which is the grain deal and its cancellation and resumption. Now, I say cancellation, it wasn't really cancelled. The Russians withdrew their cooperation from it for 48 hours. And it was resumed today to the great chagrin of many Russian nationalists who think that the whole thing should be binned and that it's an appalling sign of weakness to even sign the thing in the first place. Now, there is a, I've noticed that the Russian uh, military commentators and observers on Telegram have a tendency towards, shall we say, the rather melancholic disposition. Perhaps that's part of the national character. Who knows? But the... The reason why it was signed in the first place and the reason why it's been renewed do make sense. First of all, what happened? Uh, the Russians said that they were pulling out of it. They weren't going to guarantee the security of the civilian vessels leaving the port of Odessa anymore because, of course, the British and the Ukrainian sock puppets that they used had used the shipping lane from the, uh, the grain deal that was meant to have only civilian shipping in it to launch um, sea drones from which, of course, attacked the Black Sea Fleet in Sevastopol Harbour. Now, when this was announced, there was a flurry of condemnation and screaming from the European nations from the US because, of course, they need that wheat coming into the European market to aid them in keeping prices down. It's not going to the, the needy and the poor of the world. Um, it's going to be used in the more advanced nations. And, of course, this triggered a flurry of phone calls, or one big phone call between 
Putin and Erdogan because, of course, the other big beneficiary of it are the Turks, who not only are uh, gaining uh, prestige from having brokered this deal, though nominally it operates under UN oversight, but the Erdogan presidency were crucial in actually pulling this thing together. And the other side of it is, of course, that the Turks um, mill a lot of this grain when it comes in from the ships, taking it from Odessa. So the Turkish grain mill industry is doing tremendously well processing all of this, all of these grain product from Ukraine. And, of course, the Turkish um, national grain supply, this Turkish national nationalized company, um, is stocking up big time from a lot of this grain that get, comes in from Ukraine and to the point where they are now building up huge reserves of wheat and other products in Turkey to prepare for a potential supply crisis of food. So Erdogan's gaining a lot out of this deal, far more than Zelensky is, to be honest. And, of course, he wants to see it continue for as long as possible because He's got a big election coming up next year, a Turkish presidential election in which he will, of course, be running again. And he faces maybe not a close run thing, but he faces significant challenges. You'll remember earlier in this year, there was, of course, the problems with hyperinflation in Turkey. Erdogan fired a load of central bank governors who weren't uh, delivering on what he wanted. And economic problems were starting to bite into his popularity. So this war in Ukraine has actually done rather well for him. They've made a ton of money selling weaponry to the Ukrainians. They've made a ton of money off the grain deal. They've bought in a lot of wheat on the cheap uh, via the grain deal, partly via the grain deal anyway. So this is something which has been very advantageous to Erdogan and something that he wants to keep. So, of course, he wanted the Russians back in on it. So what did the Russians ask for? something meaningless, really. They asked uh, Ukraine give them a written guarantee that they would not be uh, launching any more attacks from these sea lanes which are supposed to be used for grain shipments. Now, of course, a written guarantee from Zelensky is about as good as a promise of celibacy from Bill Clinton. It was something which is being given not seriously because Zelensky cannot give any guarantee that these British handlers aren't going to say to him, hey, look, Vladimir, it'd be a great idea if we launched an attack on this Russian installation from this location. And he can't say no. He can't say no for a variety of reasons. If he, say, if he ever says no to any of the people who have been paying his bills, the bills might stop getting paid. Also, it has been confirmed by both Russian sources and sources in the West that Zelensky's family is being guarded by uh, various different military professionals from the British Armed Forces, mainly, it would seem, from the Special Air Service, the SAS, the elite um, sabotage terrorism unit that uh, the British state runs, which does a lot of the most dangerous and dirty operations, but also provides protection services, apparently. And they're the people guarding Zelensky's family. Now, of course, guarding is one way of looking at it. Holding prisoner is another way of looking at it. Because, of course, Zelensky couldn't trust anybody in Ukraine to actually guard his own family. So he asked the British to do it. And, of course, now he's ever more dependent on them. So he cannot give this guarantee to the Russians that they aren't going to use the shipping lanes to launch attacks. 
because it's not his decision. He cannot say no to any idea the British or the Americans have. And Erdogan knows that. Putin knows that. But what it gives both of them is it gives Erdogan another month before the Russians start their major military operation again in the possibly towards the region of Odessa, which would shut down that port anyway. So it gives Erdogan another month for profiting off this deal. And it gives Putin essentially a good reason to pull this thing at any time. Say, well, you can't trust. And he gives him another thing to hold up and say, look, we had these signed guarantees from the government of Zelensky. And not only does he not abide by them, but he doesn't abide by them because he's a puppet of the West. Ukraine's government has no sovereignty. That's a message Putin is leaning into very much these days over the past couple of weeks. So it costs the Russians not very much to keep this thing going. It buys them uh, the further favor of Erdogan. And the favor of Erdogan, in terms of building a constructive relationship with him, is something that the Russians require for access, of course, to the Black Sea, which the Turkish government controls. Well, by the way, the Turkish government is jacking up the prices for um, entrance to the Black Sea and moving through their territory of the Bosphorus. And this is causing costs for civilian shipping to go through the roof because they keep putting the price up. So never let it be said that Erdogan missed a commercial opportunity. But they also, the Russians do need him for his cooperation to some degree in Syria. But the bigger one is, of course, Armenia and Azerbaijan, where Azerbaijan is, of course, to say that they're close to the Turks is a massive understatement. The Azerbaijani regime would not have survived this far. Certainly they wouldn't have won that war with the Armenians back in 2020 without the Turkish military essentially running the show for them. But with Putin now invested personally in trying to conclude a peace deal that's going to last between Armenia and Azerbaijan, the favour of Erdogan is required because without that, Aliyev doesn't sign. Because without Erdogan, Aliyev doesn't have a job and possibly not much of the rest of his life either. So the relationship between the Russian government and the Turkish government is strained at times, um, but always developing towards some kind of mutual interest, certainly in recent years, which is um, a tribute to the persistence of the Russian government when they were on the point of having almost a shooting war with them in Syria, uh, themselves and the Turkish government, when a Russian jet was shot down there by Turkish armed forces. Of course, the Russian ambassador to Turkey was assassinated and all kinds of things were going on in that uh, period of the early Russian involvement in the Syrian war. So now they're in a place where the Turks are moving more and more steadily away from the EU and NATO towards an orientation that is more pointed towards Eurasia. And Erdogan is going to milk this direct grain deal for everything it's got before it finally goes kaput, which, of course, he knows very well it's going to. He's just going to get as much as he can out of this before the final hammer comes down. And the port of Odessa ends up being Russian property anyway. And in which case, Erdogan still wins because the Russians will be looking to ship stuff out of Odessa. Then he can charge them for going through the Bosphorus. <laughs> Never again. If nothing else, he is an enterprising businessman. You have to say that. So 
the grain deal is back on and of course it is much more about turkey russia relations than it is about anything to do with ukraine but the other factor in this is of course the second part of that grain deal which is the commitment to unblock um, russian agricultural products that part of the deal was that these uh, russian grain and russian fertilizer would be more readily and freely able to be moved around the global trade routes and not subjected to sanctions and restrictions and that part of the deal hasn't been delivered upon so far uh, there's still enormous difficulties for countries looking to get hold of russian grain including countries in africa so the western nations haven't delivered on their part of that so far so there's every reason to think that they won't again this time unless of course some further um, assurance has been given or a more concrete measure has been taken maybe there's enough desperation in european capitals to actually properly unblock this thing now though it is an interesting thing to observe that of course several european countries already gave themselves an exemption in terms of getting hold of russian fertilizer one of those was the netherlands of course which is one of the agricultural centers of western europe and actually trade with the netherlands from russia actually went up this year i believe around about 18 percent because the dutch government was actually you know, the dutch companies were actually buying more fertilizer not less which is one of the reasons why they gave themselves a workaround so again the sanctions regime though it did have a certain effect in certain areas is easily got around by countries who are big enough and determined enough to basically say no we will not have our industry trashed in this way but in for the dutch government its agricultural industries are tremendously important so grain deal back on uh erdogan um coining it in as much as he possibly can in preparation for an election basically so i mentioned armenia and azerbaijan there's a couple of interesting things coming out of the um the conflict there and wider issues which is that of course putin was down in sochi um in the, over the course of this week talking with pashinyan and uh, aliyev with the idea that they were going to work towards some kind of final settlement now a couple of interesting things come out of this they're deferring final settlement over nagorno-karabakh until later this year possibly in the early new year who knows how that is that is going to go but Pashinyan, who is rightly regarded as a guy who is very, very close or would like to be close to the EU in particular, him being from that section of the Armenian intelligentsia that was desperate to join the EU, wanted to get some kind of EU-US involvement in this. But in the end, even he seems to have worked out or he is under pressure from other elements within the Armenian ruling class and of course from mass protests in the streets of Yerevan to stay on board with the Russians basically because there's been a realization that the Americans and the Europeans can't bring the Armenians anything the Americans would have absolutely no intention of getting in the way of the deals that they have with Aliyev over gas supply and the Europeans certainly wouldn't get in the way of that either and so Pashinyan was put in a position where he had to ask Putin to retain the Russian peacekeeping presence in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh put in perpetuity essentially and this would have been something that I don't think Pashinyan would have wanted to do but he's left with no option 
The French aren't riding to his rescue. Emmanuel Macron is not going to be sticking the French Foreign Legion in Nagorno-Karabakh anytime soon, partly because he might need them at home to hang on to his own office, given the uh, militant attitude on the streets of France and the increasing tension within um, French society and the increasingly violent class conflicts that are raging there against uh, the regime of Macron, but also because not only would the Russians not accept that, I don't think uh, even the Turks would accept that, nor would the Iranians, who made it abundantly clear to Pashinyan on numerous occasions recently that they would not accept external meddling, as uh, the I think it was President Raisi of Iran put it, in uh, the region. And the Iranians basically said that they had an interest in the Caucasus, as a lot of this is the old historic territory of um, ancient Persia, but no more in the more modern era, the old Persian state that started to get dismantled by the old Russian Empire in the 18th century, where Armenia, Azerbaijan, um, that had formerly been part of Iran, got taken over by the Russian Empire. Clearly, there are some people in Tehran who might think that there's an opportunity to get some of that back at some point. But either way, the leaders of Iran made it clear to Pashinyan this week, because after he'd met with Putin and Aliyev, he went down to Tehran to meet with Raisi, and Raisi basically said, no, you are not going to have um, Europeans or Americans involved in this. We will not accept that. And given that um, Iran is one of the countries that could potentially guarantee the sovereignty of Armenia against a potential Turkish incursion, Again, Pashinyan's not left with much of a choice there. He has to bargain with Iran, even though it probably pains his uh, pro-EU support base to do so. But again, you can't get away from where particular interests lie. And in terms of the capitalist class in Armenia, uh, pathetic and small though it may be, there's a lot more potential for them doing business with Russia and Iran, given that uh, Russia is very close and Iran uh, has a border with Armenia, a border which, by the way, the Iranians are very much determined to keep and have been warning the Azerbaijanis and, by extension, Erdogan to stay the hell away from it, not cut off, try to cut off Armenia from Iran and made it clear that they will not accept that. And it's one of those statements that seems very definitive and not to be argued with. Incidentally, by the way, Aliyev's security forces claim to have arrested a lot of Azerbaijanis who were working for the Iranian intelligence services this week. Could be a stitch-up job, could be real, who knows. But certainly I would think that the Iranians are running intelligence operations inside both Azerbaijan and Armenia. Certainly they are looking to extend their influence inside Armenia. They opened up another consulate in southern Armenia recently with the aim of building their presence there, it would seem. So there's all kinds of games going on inside this southern Caucasus area involving uh, Russia, Iran, Turkey, always with the threat of US imperialism trying to stir some shit up. Though I would argue that their ability to do so is going to be ever more diminished in the years to come because the petty bourgeois civil society types that they paid for and fostered over the last 30 years since or longer certainly since the end of the soviet union the appeal of those organizations will start to lose its luster as u.s imperialism reveals itself to be a very poor ally because 
why, even if you're some petty bourgeois type who hates the Russians, hates the Iranians, thinks that they can magically create out of whole cloth a, an Armenia that is accepted into the EU, seeing that the Germans and the French are diminished, seeing that Schultz has to go on bended knee to Beijing, seeing that the Americans won't give you anything in terms of protection from Aliyev or Erdogan, even some of the madder petty bourgeois types have got to reassess the priorities, um, perhaps, in, re in coming years. So Armenia and Azerbaijan and the developments there is another crucial thing to keep your eye on, given that this is another area where the Americans will still try and make moves. And, of course, this brings me to the comedy story. Um, we're going to end on a lighter note today, which is that, of course, Elon Musk cucks to the security state. And I'm going to leave a moment's silence for anybody who thought that this would not happen to leave the listenership. Okay, I'm taking that you have gone. Now, the <laughs> this is the least surprising story of the day. It was always going to happen, given the extreme paranoia and madness that the American security state has over social media. They were never going to allow um, Twitter to become this sort of free speech, free for all that some of Elon's fanboys had in mind. And of course, Elon Musk himself immediately got cold feet and started backtracking because he might like to portray himself as some sort of rogue billionaire, but the guy does an awful lot of business with the American federal government. And given the extreme dysfunction, paranoia and madness consuming the various different organs of the American government at the moment, why on earth would he defy this uh, rabid dog that is uh, squatting in Washington right now? He is not going to risk upsetting them. And you could tell that when he got a bit worried recently over potential Russian attacks on Starlink and started suggesting a peace plan in Ukraine, got in a few Twitter exchanges with some Ukrainian nationalists, uh, started to suggest he might want to uh, not provide the Starlink service anymore or he might pass the bill on to the Pentagon. Somebody, probably within the Pentagon, had a word in Elon's ear and that threat was dropped. And it, I can only assume, and I think this is probably what happened, that what happened with his Twitter purchase was that various messages were passed to him from various interested parties, that if he continued down the road of having Trump back on and having a free-for-all, that these various interested parties in Congress, uh, certainly from the Democratic side, even if they didn't manage to uh, hold the House and, and the Senate, could still use their position, even in the short term, to make life very difficult for him holding all kinds of inquiries into his business practices, maybe uh, inspiring the IRS to do a more aggressive audit of his companies, um, finding disgruntled former employees of Tesla, of which there are many, um, who might want to, for instance, stage a lawsuit against Elon um, with some appropriate funding from Democratic Party-aligned donors, perhaps all kinds of things that the Democrats in particular could do to Elon Musk and his business concerns that would be very unwelcome, that would be potentially risking the stock price, that would potentially reveal some very embarrassing and damaging things about the fact that Elon Musk is basically a con man running a Ponzi scheme. All this stuff is potentially 
out there to be exposed. So, of course, Musk has bent over backwards now to assure all of these easily offended parties in Congress that he has no intention of allowing a free-for-all and will abide by all the different strictures put down by the official representatives of the American censorship regime, namely the Anti-Defamation League, which seems to deal more in censorship than actual defamation these days, and various other professional busybodies turned agents of the security state who seek to make sure that only approved messages, either corporate-approved or Biden-administration-approved messages, get onto Twitter. Of course, with the changeover in Congress likely in November or later in November, the regime messages will probably change from Black Lives Matter and trans rights now to immediate war on Iran or something like that, something more in line with the opinions of the Republican leadership. So Elon has cucked, and how was it ever going to be otherwise? It's just... One of those amusing stories of how there can be no true rebel billionaires. How can you rebel when you're already the ruling class? That brings us to the end of this episode of the Red Star Daily Bulletin. I will be back again with more of this tomorrow. If you want to find more like this, more content like this, you can take a look on the Patreon page where you can find more in-depth analysis of all the issues that have been mentioned tonight, along with episodes from our Introduction to Marxism-Leninism series and the Marxist History of World War II series that are also running at the moment. But until tomorrow, thank you for listening. Everybody knows that the days are loaded Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed Everybody knows the war is over Everybody knows the good guys lost Everybody knows the fight was fixed The poor stay poor, the rich get rich That's how it goes Everybody knows Everybody knows that the boat is leaking Everybody knows the captain lied Everybody got this broken feeling Like their father or their dog just died Everybody talking to their pockets Everybody wants a box of chocolate in the long stem road Everybody knows Everybody knows that you love me, baby Everybody knows that you really do Everybody knows that you've been faithful Give or take a night or two Everybody knows you've been discreet But there were so many people just had to meet without your clothes And everybody knows Everybody knows Everybody knows That's how it Yeah.